Good morning. Isn't that good? By your grace, I'm made when I'm not. It's awesome that we have a God that chases us. Where would we be without him? We have this conversation around our dinner table a lot, typically after we're seeking each other's forgiveness with my family. Where would we be without a God who tells us what to do? Where, where would we be without a God who pursues us and says, come and get, and, and he says, I'm going to come and get you. That's awesome. Even this morning, he's coming to get us. As you guys sit here, as I've studied and bring the word, double-edged sword cuts both directions, both sides of the room, and he's coming to get us even this morning as we open up his word. In 2000, uh, I had one of my favorite jobs other than what I'm doing right now. I was uh, 30 years old. I was uh, working for an organization called Pilgrimage, and uh, it was an educational resource company, and so I was uh, an older student finishing up my undergrad. I uh, was one of those guys who crammed four years in the 12th, and um, so I was teaching classes while I was also taking classes. I was at uh, now Summit University Baptist Bible College. I understand Cody is there now. And like Cody, I was, doing, I was teaching some high-end theology classes, at whitewater paddling, rock climbing, and outdoor survival skills. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I would do in the off-season was I built canoes and then um, also had the opportunity to go up into Algonquin Provincial Park and lead leadership development trips in the context of a canoe, a canoe trip. And so we would allow the natural elements to kind of force uh, people to come together and to develop relational skills, team-building skills, and leadership skills. On one particular trip, uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, lead a group of the best of the best college students. It was called an honor corps. These were kids that were extremely intelligent. They were so intelligent. This is the guy who crammed four years in the 12th, and these guys were all studying Egyptian hieroglyphics. Who does that? <laughs> and um, I was pretty intimidated by their intellect. It wasn't my job to actually lead. It was my job to kind of lead the leaders and help them to lead and facilitate learning on this trip. The team chose two young ladies to lead. And um, they decided on a very, very aggressive trip. I had been on this trip before with a couple of actually uh, uh, nationally ranked college wrestlers, and it burnt them out. And so this was a group of mixed co-ed group of very academic students, and they chose a very aggressive trip. And I said, okay, that's your choice, knowing what that meant. I also told them, you guys need to be drinking tons of water. You need to be drinking at least two gallons of water a day or you're going to dehydrate. Two gallons. Well, they didn't listen. So very soon into the trip, a couple of the students were extremely dehydrated. That set us back. Uh, one of the students got very sick. We actually had to set up a tent. She almost got hypothermic. That set us back. By the time we were at the middle point of our trip, distance-wise, we were way far, in, way far into this, this trip. And I knew we're going to have to way pick up our speed because we're either going to go back the way we came, which is going to take us just as long as completing the trip. So to try to shorten a long story, um, I realized the, the next day we had to make a rendezvous point with all the other, with the, all the other groups where we could connect 
and uh, learn from each other and what we had been doing. Well, you got to remember the tension kept mounting, the pressure is getting greater. At this point, the, to make our rendezvous point, we had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. We paddled 30 miles and did 20 miles of portaging. If you know what a portage is, that means you pack up all your equipment, you put it on your back, you carry your canoe. 20 miles. We almost did a marathon on top of paddling 30 miles. We started at 4 in the morning, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, we finally got to the lake of our rendezvous point. It was about a three-mile paddle across this large lake. We got to make it. We started off across the lake, the clouds moved in, and it got black like that. At one point, one of the students said, put your hand in front of your face. I can't see my hand. It was so dark that we actually couldn't find shore. And then the waves picked up. And now all of a sudden, the tension is really mounting. People are frustrated. People are angry at the leaders. And now they're angry at me because they think I know what I'm doing and I'm just not telling them. So I bring them together into the center of the lake. Lots of name-calling. Now, these are high academic, scripture-based students, spiritual believers in Christ, calling each other names, frustrating, undermining the leadership. I pulled them all together, and I challenged them a little bit, kind of, what's God doing in your life right now? That went really well. The storm got so profound that I finally pulled the plug. I said, you're going to have to now follow me because it's getting dangerous. We finally made it to shore. We found shore. Every campsite was taken. We ended up on the campsite of a gentleman. I went up to his site. I said, look, this storm is really bad. Can we crash on your campsite for the night? He said, absolutely. We finally made some macaroni and cheese at 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, everybody had a little bit to eat. It was very quiet. It was very tense, and people were very um, tired. So we ended up um, packing it in for the night and going to sleep. Guys, when pressure hits, when the expectations go up, when the responsibilities get greater, human um, potential, human um, propensity is to go inward to get self-protective, to understand this is what I think the agenda is and this is where we need to go. And that came out very loud and clear. So this letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul is um, addressing outside pressure creating inside difficulty. We're going to spend some time in this book. We're going to particularly land in chapter 12 And uh, as we get there, I want to kind of talk through some of the context of the book. This is a letter to a church with great difficulties and pressure. Paul wants this church um, divided because of the arrogance of its more powerful members to work together for the advancement of the gospel. He wants them to drop their divisive one-upmanship and build up the faith of those who are weak and the witness effectively to unbelievers. It's a quote from the Expositor's Bible commentary. He does it with gentleness, but Paul is addressing the problems in the church 
resulting from the pressures outside of the church. He is primarily dealing with immaturity and self-centeredness. That's what the book is about. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the summary, he says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. And the result of them being in the flesh is Paul answering um, their needs in this letter, 1 Corinthians. In chapters 4 and 5, they were not dealing with the blatant sin that was happening in the church. In chapter 6, they were filing and waging lawsuits against each other. Now remember, this is a result of them still being in the flesh. In chapter 7, they were experiencing difficulties in their marriage. In chapters 8 through 10, they were struggling with putting off idolatry and not making idols. In chapters 11, they were um, coming to their community gatherings, to the Lord's Supper, and they were so focused on themselves that they were ignoring other people in the church. So that's the context leading up to chapter 12. And then in chapter 12, spiritual, spiritual gifts were misunderstood and being pursued for selfish reasons. And then you get to the culminating chapter, chapter 13, which is the love chapter. And Paul says, at the end of chapter 12, he says, and now I am going to show you a more excellent way. Remember? So he's helping them gently. He's addressing these problems, these difficulties. There was a lot of pressure outside of the church. You've got to remember these are young believers. It's a mixture of Jew and Gentile in this church. The Jews, the Gentiles coming together. This is a unique blend of people never seen before. They, they don't necessarily know how to navigate. They're struggling with syncretism. In other words, they're bringing old things in, both the Jews bringing in their understanding of the Mosaic law and they're bringing that into the new church and then you have the Gentiles bringing in you know, polytheism and, and trying to reconcile all that and here's this ragtag group of believers coming together and there's a lot of work to do. And Paul does it gently but he also does it forthrightly. You have the pressures from the outside creating these pressures or being brought in to the pressures on the inside and again, in the culminating famous love chapter, chapter 13, Paul says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And as an antidote for all that's going on, Paul offers love that produces maturity. In his final instructions, as we get to the end of the book, in chapter 16, Paul gives some final instructions. In verse 13, he says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. See, Paul wants the Corinthian church to understand this. I am living like God when I am, when I am giving and receiving in Christian community, motivated by love. That's what he wants them to understand. I am living like God when I am giving and receiving in Christian communi community 
motivated by love, ready together go. So as we think about this Corinthian context, what, what, what are some applications for us? So we see a church with great difficulties, and, and I was talking with Doug before I came, and he said, you know, Rob, we're really, there's, there's not a lot of these great difficulties. We're not kind of experiencing them. So what's the transition between this Corinthian concept, context, what the original hearers would have heard, and our application? There's definitely some differences as well as similarities between the original hearer and us in our American culture. One of the things I enjoy about America is uh, the ideal of individual freedom, autonomy, personal responsibility, self-reliance, initiative, creativity. Those are really the things that our country was built on, but often our greatest strengths can also be our greatest weaknesses, true? And... um, you know, some of those greatest strengths, I think, I wouldn't even say they've infiltrated their way into the church. It's just we're Americans and we're bringing this into the church, some of these contexts. Individualism, isolationism, you know, with freedom and autonomy, you also have licentiousness and self-focus. So while as a church we may not be experiencing great problems, Although some of you are sitting there thinking, if my problems get any greater, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to make it. So it would, be, it would be ignorant or foolish to say that we, we don't have great problems going on, even in a church as good as this. But collectively, while we may not be experiencing great problems like the Corinthian church, there are definitely some principles which we can relate, True. So even as I was reading through that list of what, what the things the Corinthians were facing, if I remolded them and, and kind of made them applicable for us today, I think here's some of the things we might be experiencing. There's a lot of pressure on Christians from the outside culture. James would say that we face three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I would put this in the world category. As a church, we face a lot of pressure from the world. But not only that, there's a, there's a significant draw. There are distractions, there are temptations from inside us. So it's not just the world's pressure, but there's something inside of us that's drawn to it. James would call that the flesh. Not only is the world pressuring me, but sometimes I like the pressure. Even secretly, I want to give in to it. And when no one's looking, I do. I wouldn't admit that here in this group. But there's not just outside pressure, there's inside pressure. And I think we can relate with the Corinthians on that. There's this propensity to make idols, to put things in God's place. Ed Welch says to diversify our spiritual portfolio, right? Just in case doesn't God doesn't work. I want to have some other things that are working for me. We, we can relate with that. Chapters 8 through 10 with the Corinthians, this propensity to, to create idols, true? When we come together in community gatherings, in church, in small group, I think we can relate that we often spend a lot of time on ourselves than others. I'm not, guys, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just eliciting some thoughts. I mean, 
when you're getting ready to come to church or to go to a Christian function, I mean, this is, this is the question I was asking myself as I prepare. How much time do I spend thinking about my clothes, the, the dressing? I was even coming in this morning, I looked, my wife ironed my shirt, and I'm like, did she iron this thing even? You know, what are these people going to think that in Brown County we still, we still put the iron on the wood stove? What, what's the deal? You know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about myself as I come to church. And I think we can relate with the Corinthians on this one. They went to the community gatherings and there was a lot of focus on me. And guys, I don't, I don't think sometimes we're that far. You know, and then chapter 12, within the context of modern-day Christianity, the focus on gifts. Now, you know, there might not be a great misuse of gifts in the church like they were facing in, in the Corinthian church, but I think the focus on gifts reflects our cultural values. And I think there's been a lot of emphasis in the church put on discovering your spiritual gifts. And I'm not down on spiritual gifts test. I think they're okay and they have their place. But I would question what drives that. What is it that says, I got to have this gift and, and so that I know what I'm supposed to do so that I can bring it to the church? Guys, there's some, there's some, there's some values, American values built in to, to that perspective that says, I have to bring something of value. I must do something valuable. I, you, you see that? How can I discover my gift? How can I be effective? How can I make the most impact? And again, that sounds, some of that can sound really good, but if you undress that, I think sometimes it's a, it, our gifts can be a lot about us. And I think we can relate with the Corinthian church on that if, if we're not careful. And so even though there's some disparaging difficulties going on between the Corinthian church and what we may be experiencing, there's also some similarities enough similarities that when we read this letter from Paul to the Corinthians, we ought to be going, well, Lord, you're speaking to me, right? But you're doing it with graciousness and kindness. You know, Doug said it. God has ordained relationships. Sin has brought brokenness to relationships. That's what we're talking about. But yet we're called to relationship. So the answer to Christian community is not not meeting, Right? We're still supposed to meet together. We're called to relationships. So much like the Corinthians, if we're not careful, we can ever so subtly use our gifts in ways to be more about us, how it makes me look, the value I bring, how it makes me feel, rather than serving the body motivated by love. See, much like the Corinthians, if we're not careful, even subtly, my gifts can be more about me than serving the body motivated by love but the gospel rescues us from ourselves amen so as we sat around that campfire in the middle of the canadian wilderness this ragtag group so angry with each other that now nobody's speaking the gospel wants to come and get us it wants to save us from our human propensity to gravitate inwards See, through the letter of Corinthians, the Lord wants us to remember, I am living like God when I am giving and receiving in Christian community, motivated by love. Ready? Together? Go. 
There's an African, an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Ready, together, go. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In his efforts to bring understanding to what we've been talking about, what this, does this mean not to live as isolated, not to live for self, but to get ourselves outside of ourselves, Paul uses the analogy of a body to make a couple of key points. And one of the key points is this. Gifts are given for the purpose of others and ultimately God's kingdom. So one of the points Paul is going to make between verses 1 and 12 is that the gifts are given to us not so that we can feel valuable, but the gifts are given to us for the sake of others and ultimately for God's kingdom. And we're to use those gifts in conjunction with the other believers that come together for the sake of others. In verse 7, he says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So let me read verses 12 through 20. I want you to pay attention to some repetitive words. I know you guys have been under good teaching to know that when you hear repetitive words, you, you want to pay attention to those. So listen for the repetitive words in the passage as I read. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that should not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now what repetitive words did you hear? This is is your part. Body. What else? One. Paul, Paul uses the word one seven times in nine verses. He uses the word body 14 times in nine verses. One and body. In verse 12, he sets up the analogy. He's helping us to make application to the church. One commentary says this, he really wants to hammer home three points. The human body is a unit. The human body has many parts. The human body works together as one. Friends, we've heard this analogy so many times, the body, the body, the body. I think we can skip over the application. Paul is really wanting us to understand what it means to live and love and give and receive in community. 
and he presents to us the functioning, the work of the body. Let's pay attention to it. The body is one unit. The body has many parts. The body works together. We're meant to pay attention to this. In verse 13, he then unifies believers in Christ through the Spirit. Remember, this is a group of fairly new believers. We would know from the book of Acts at Pentecost that the the Spirit came upon them, that they're all united in the Spirit. Peter would have been completely blown away that the Samaritans and the Greeks also received the Spirit in the same way that the Jews did. This is a very new concept for all of them. And yet they're united, so he even breaks it up a little bit in, in verse 13, he says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of the same spirit. He said, guys, we are this one body, all of us, all of you, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, all the dividing walls are broken down. That's true for us, friends. He unifies believers in Christ through the Spirit. When we come to Christ, we are baptized into the Spirit regardless of race, background, class. And then that Spirit then gives gifts and empowers us to act dependently within the body of Christ. And then in verses 14 through 16, it's interesting that he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Then look at verse 15, he says, if the foot should say. And then in verse 16, he says, if the ear should say. See what he's doing? He's he's breaking it up into individual pieces, and he's saying, if an individual piece were to say, well, I, I don't do that, so therefore. And he's doing it from the perspective of an individual piece. But then if you look at verse 17, he says, if the whole body were an eye. So he switches the analogy. First he wants us to think of it from an individual, which is I think how we typically come to stuff. We come as an individual. But then he switches the analogy and says, but now think of it as if you're the body. See? From verses 14 through 16, from the individual member's perspective, i.e., if a part were to say, I do not belong to the body. In other words, it's really not that important that I do my job. Take it or leave it. We've got the ear. Is the spirit just landed on the building or are those just (laughs) remnants from Gander Mountain, those little... That's a marketing genius. I pulled in, I thought, look at that. Are those real? Anyway... Let's ignore those guys. It's hard in the parking lot, though. They're leaving little land, green landmines all over everywhere. <laughs> but guys, Paul wants us to remember that the individual members, he, he wants us to remember it's, it's not, it's, we cannot be saying, well, so-and-so has that job, and that's really important. Mine, not so much. Paul says no, we need every every part and Paul is emphasizing the need for unity that we're all coming together that we need to come together that we see our part as essential that we see our part as necessary 
and that we recognize that the most humble thing that I can do is actually say, when God gave me the spirit, the spirit longs to go to his body and go to work. And the most humble thing I can do is actually say, it's not about me, it's about what the spirit wants to do in me, and I need to do something about that, you see? It's not actually that humble to go, nah, my part's not that important. That's not humble, that's actually pride. But to be able to say the spirit longs to do a work in the body of Christ, he resides in me and he has something to do for me. Paul is emphasizing the need for unity. Ready, together, go. And then in verses 17 through 20, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Was that... But, but as it is, God has arranged the members of the body. So again, he flips it to the body's perspective. In other words, if the body were to say, we all just need to act like each other. Paul is emphasizing that that's not going to work, that there's actually diversity within the body. The body is one, but it's also many parts. In other words, it's really important that we allow others to do their job and it's also really important that we recognize that job in others and share what we see in them and draw them into the community by the way I think that is the best spiritual gifts test on the planet is that when we're living and engaging in community and others speak up and say I see this in you do more of that let me stir that up in you I see the spirit at work in you that's the gift that's the gift you bring to the body and we find it as we go together and then in verses 18 through 20 but as it is God arranged guys this whole thing about ready together go this isn't a good pastoral idea. It's a God idea. God arranged. Your pastoral staff is just emphasizing what God said. This is God's call for us as a church, that he arranged. This isn't, and I know you wouldn't take it like this, but this isn't, man, uh, <clears throat> that's a good idea. I think I'll jump on that. No, no. This is, God is calling us. This is the mission of the church. This is what we're called to do. As he chose, this is God's design. It's his way of functioning. As he chose. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. So Paul would say, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, Jesus' words. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the church, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The, 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Guys, do you hear that? These are Jesus' words, and he's saying, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to the church. Why? That they may be one, that repetitive term, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, meaning the world, even as you have loved me. Isn't that awesome? God chose, God arranged, and Jesus is praying on our behalf that we would realize this passage. So when Paul is emphasizing these words to the Corinthians, he's not just saying, hey guys, we've got to pull it together. He's saying, this is Jesus' prayer for us to be a body, to be one, to represent our Father as he chose and as we represent him we'll show the world I am living like God when I am giving and receiving in Christian community motivated by love so the next morning we wake up and uh, I was the first one up like I said we'd gotten to bed pretty late our campsite host was standing out by the lake. I walked out by him, asked him where he was from, what he was doing. And uh, he told me he was uh, a Wiccan and that he was actually on his quest to discover his destiny. I thought, awesome. He's open to spiritual things. I'll start talking to him about spiritual things. That didn't go well. <laughs> I'm not a very good group leader, I don't think. <clears throat> but he said to me, look, man, I've heard this before and I'm really not interested in what you have to offer, but I appreciate your willingness to talk to me. Okay. So as these college students came out of their tent, we were actually working through the book of First Thessalonians on our um, trip together. And um, I invited them. I said, hey, we're going to begin discussing our trip and our processing the difficult day we had yesterday. And if you want to join us, feel free. We're on your campsite. And he said, no, no thanks. So as we began processing the difficulties and the pressure through the lens of the book of 1 Thessalonians, it became real to these young believers and myself what had come out of our hearts. And that pressure caused us to go inwards and the gospel calls us to go outwards and that we wanted to be more outward people and that it's interesting that the things that came out on our trip are the same things that manifest themselves in their lives back home. And this was just a small reflection of what happens back at home and that these pressures caused me to do this and to do that. And, but the gospel calls me outward and even in the midst of great pressure like Paul was under, he's loving and giving and pouring himself out and there was repentance taking place and several of the group members actually sought forgiveness and said here's where I was wrong here's how I want to I want to be different I want to love like God loves I don't want to go inwards and they're asking each other's forgiveness and they're hugging and all of a sudden I look over and our campsite host is sitting in the corner of our fire ring and he's drying out his oatmeal pot and listening 
When we got done, we prayed together. Forgiveness was sought. Our minds were changed. The gospel brought us out of ourselves. The college students got up to start breaking up camp. He immediately came over to me and he said, what the heck just happened here? He didn't use the word heck, but he was very intrigued. And I said, uh, well, well, we just had a Bible study. I told you we were going to do that. He goes, no, no. I've never seen anybody study the Bible like that before. It meant something to you. It gave direction to your life. It, it, it gave these people purpose. They had hope. All of a sudden, the man who wanted nothing to do with the gospel watched this ragtag group of broken people look at their lives through the lens of sin and say, I want to be more like God. We uh, took a piece of birch bark and I drew a picture of our, our beach scene at night and then we all signed it and we stuck it in the Gospel of John and before we left, we gave it to him. I had the opportunity to talk with him a little bit but you know, you always think, well, never see that guy again. As we paddled off, he stood there on shore with the Gospel of John that one of the students had given him with our birch bark card in there and waving to us. Two weeks later, I get an email are you the guy that was in Canada a couple of weeks ago uh, on a trip on this lake? Yes. My name is Mark Charlton. I'm the guy you met. I was on a search to find my destiny, and my destiny found me. He said, "Um, when you left me, I read through the Gospel of John four times, and I realized that while I was pursuing something else, God was pursuing me. When I got home, I knew you guys were from a Baptist college, so I went to a Baptist church. I thought, oh, thank God, it was a good one. (laughs) The, um, (laughs) the the, The pastor shared the gospel with him. He accepted Christ. He encouraged him to be baptized. He went home and told his wife, his yes, right, This is a powerful story. He went home and told his wife, this is what I've done. Uh, I need to be baptized. His wife said, if you get baptized, I'll leave you. He said, honey, I love you, but I've got to do this. He went and got baptized the following Sunday. He came home, and she was still there. And she said, if it means this much to you, that I want to know what it is that you just did. And his wife came to Christ. Guys, this was this ragtag group with a bumbling leader trying to figure out life. And we stumbled together on some guy's campsite. And this miraculous, powerful story that I am just proud that God allowed me to be a part of, that God pulls this whole thing together. Mark and I are still in contact with one another. He's a deacon in his church. And God continues to work through his life. Evangelism is the natural consequence of unity through God's word. Evangelism is an overflow of Christian community. I often think as churches, we get the cart before the horse. We do these big pushes on evangelism before we've built our body up. Friends, if we love one another in the body of Christ, what Jesus says is evangelism is a natural overflow consequence of community.
See, I am living most like God when I'm giving and receiving in Christian community, community motivated by love. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Ready, together, go. It's a great commission. Here's what I want to encourage you to do by way of application. What do we do with all that? Well, here's one thing I'd encourage you to do. Take inventory. Think about this context of the book of Corinthians. Maybe think about which chapter maybe best relates to you. How are you loving the body? I'm not talking about just using your gift because sometimes that can be about us. I'm asking you to take inventory. How are you loving this body? How are you doing that? And that's not condemnatory. It's just inventory. Where you are, there you are, right? You're, you're where you're at. We're all there. None of us are there, right? And then take inventory and just consider what does it look like to take one step closer? And so as your pastors are shepherding you over the next several weeks in this reality of rather ready together go, listen. Listen to them. The Spirit is going to be at work in your heart if you belong to Him. And He is going to begin pushing on you about this thing about togetherness. And He wants you to take one step closer. He doesn't just want this to be a good series that your pastors have put together. He literally wants this body of Christ to do this. Physically, spiritually, tangibly, He doesn't want a group of sitters he wants you all to determine what the Spirit, this one thing, typically, the Spirit's not overwhelming, like you're a schlep, you're a complete loser, that's the flesh. The Spirit picks one thing, this is it. Pay attention to this and come close to me. What's that one thing that you need to do this? And be listening as your pastors, I urge you, as your pastors bring the word to you, Apply it. Listen to the Spirit and move, to your, to move towards your community. Step one, I would encourage you to consider taking inventory. How does this context and this book and this reality of body relate to me? And then two, as your pastors speak to you, what's this one aspect of ready together go that you're going to take on as God intends you to and enjoy this process of being together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Jesus, thank you for praying for us. Father, thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for coming to get us. Thank you for being the initiator Thank you for the song that we sang before, that you come to get us. Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to be like you. Help us to take one step to be like you together. Would you allow over the next several weeks the word to implant itself in this body and that they would tangibly experience together more than they ever have. 
because of their pastor's labor and shepherding and their, this body's engagement in your truth and reality. And we thank you for what you're going to do because of the power of Christ. You're building your church and we're excited to be a part of it. In him, amen.